it literally started with four words, policy, safety, education, and reporting. I thought we have to prevent, we have to educate both students and staff members, and we have to create a reporting system. And I expanded on just those four words, and that's how I came up with this comprehensive plan. Hello, and welcome back to the Prospector Podcast. Today's episode is a discussion on the concerning issue of teacher grooming at Cupertino High School. As multiple students anonymously report their uncomfortable stories with CHS teachers. This second episode in a two-part series looks at the solutions being considered moving forward. If you haven't listened to the first part, go back and listen to that for more context about this issue. With interviews from Cupertino High School alumna and Cal Poly student Jasmine Till, who originally uncovered this issue through a series of tweets and Instagram posts, Cupertino High School principal Cami Tomberlin and associate superintendent of the Fremont Union High School District, Tom Avakumovitz. This episode examines Jasmine's five-step plan for the administration to address this problem, her thoughts about the social shift necessary to create lasting change, and the administration's plans moving forward. First up, Jasmine explains the impetus behind her comprehensive plan. The first part of my plan is to create stricter boundaries and policies between teachers and students. This would include social media, like whether it's appropriate to text, email, use GroupMe, Slack, whatever it is. I think we need to have a streamlined approach in this. And there has to be more boundaries on the time that students are spending with teachers. For example, even if a teacher thinks it's okay for a student to spend two hours after class with them one-on-one, the parent might not think it's okay, right? So I think we need to have more policies on guaranteeing and 100% confirming that what's happening is safe and okay with the parents. Um, Because not every student has like 20-20 vision on whether a teacher is a predator or not, and that's myself included in high school. Um, Including that in the first stricter boundaries policy and the first step of the plan is emotional, emotional boundaries. In one of my tweets, I tweeted this Pennsylvania school board article on what grooming is, and I think that we need to enforce these policies to prevent grooming. So then the teacher looks to the student for comfort, and that's when there is an emotional connection created. And if you continue that emotional connection for months and months, there's a lot of room for abuse of power, and there's a lot of mistakes that can be made. So what we need to do with these stricter boundaries and policies between teachers and students is really educating and making sure that these policies put into place show why grooming is wrong and how you can make sure that you maintain that teacher-student relationship. So that's part one. Uh, Ms. Chen and Mr. Hickey and Ms. Salen are helping me uh, with some the development of some materials both for students and staff along those lines and what are some um, boundaries that we can all share uh, you know so we we talked to um, the leadership class had a discussion where they looked at some situations um, like that that might be cloudy right so what can we do to make that safer what can we do to make those situations safer and so the leadership class with, with Mr. Cho's leadership and Ms. Salazar's leadership are helping us with some of those sort of unpacking some of those scenarios as well. For example, if you're a TA uh, for, for a teacher on that teacher's prep period, maybe we make it a rule that there can't just be one. 
right? That there would need to be two that period, right? So it's not this one-on-one every day. That was an example. Part two of the plan is stronger training for the staff. So this isn't just teachers. This is all staff, coaches, advisors, faculty, resource officers, literally anyone that's an adult on campus that has any contact with students, I believe needs to have stronger training. Because in the reports that I received from the hundreds of students, it wasn't just teachers. It was advisors, it was coaches, it was resource officers. We need to take away the opportunity for these teachers and staff members to abuse their power. So in step two of this plan, I think we need to have a third party to teach teachers and faculty and staff what's appropriate and what's not. Because this is the key thing. Compliance to the law is not enough. That's what proactive activism is, right? For people with disabilities, I study disability law for my senior project. For people with disabilities, compliance does not mean usability. People with disabilities can't use all the products that are made for people with disabilities because the world of disabilities is so vast and so many of these have a variety in how they are treated and how they are coming across in different bodies, right? So I think that goes to show in the law how difficult it is to actually be proactive in wanting to create an inclusive and safe space for everyone. So in this training for teachers, I believe that we need to have a third party come in and have an intense like week-long training at least, a yearly training or even semesterly training where these staff members have to get a certificate or have to take an exam on what is appropriate and what's not and what's the best way to advise or mentor or teach your students. Predators are well aware of what's in their power and how to abuse it. They know how to manipulate the system so that they can continue. And that's why this has happened for decades in our district. And that's why predators are everywhere. The reason why I believe we need to have stronger training for teachers is so that, first of all, we can prevent harm rooting from ignorance. There are teachers that do have good intentions, but make students feel uncomfortable. They just need stronger training on how to draw the line and be cautious of power dynamics. We need to better educate them on what's appropriate and what's not. Second, this will help keep teachers accountable for their actions. If a teacher has a report about them on how they were creepy and how they crossed the line, because they did this training, there's no way they can make an excuse on how they didn't know, right? Let's say there's a new teacher that starts teaching at Cupertino High School, and the first thing they're faced with in their teacher orientation is a lesson and discussion on grooming. After this orientation, they're going to be extremely aware of their actions and go above and beyond to make sure that they're creating habits to make students comfortable. We do talk to our teachers about uh, appropriate and inappropriate student-teacher relationships. We have... uh, you know, during our new teacher orientation, you know, we go through scenarios about what's appropriate, what's not. Is it appropriate to have a Facebook friend as a student? When is it appropriate? When may may it not be? And it evolves over time. Uh, I'll share with you personally, like now, 15 years ago, texting a student about anything would have been meant like, really? But now text is such a common communication technique that it's often used very appropriately, you know? And when I, I, when I first started teaching, 
even emailing students was not necessarily considered white. Well, no, that's a, you only email privately. So my point is there is the norms evolve over time. And what we want to make sure of, whatever norms are in place, there's appropriate boundaries. So. Every teacher, every staff member, everybody on campus has to take, um, uh, it's an online training. We do it annually. It's a two-hour training. And we're responsible for passing the test. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's done already, mm -hmm. right, as part of our preventative measures. But what I figured out in the process is that some of, we aren't necessarily making it that clear to kids. The third part of this plan is to educate students. We need to educate students better on what a teacher-student relationship should look like, or an advisor and student, or a coach and student. All of these need to be laid out because we can't expect parents to teach their children what a teacher-student relationship should look like. We need to put our funding where our mouths are at. If the district really cares about these issues, then we need to spend money on resources, raising awareness, hiring professionals to teach these students what victim blaming, sexual harassment, and rape culture is. Similarly to how we're taught about drugs and alcohol in high school, we need to use our funding to learn more about sexual harassment and victim blaming. These are realities that every person is going to face, either witness or experience. And our district is just not spending the money on it, right? We are forced to go to these assemblies where our classmates pretend to die so that we can learn about drunk driving. We watch these gory and bizarre assemblies, yet they don't spend a dime on hiring people to teach us about these topics. And second to that part of educating students is educating students about the law. Part of my activism is a lot of reporting. Going to a predominantly white school at Cal Poly Slow, I report a lot of racist incidences, whether it's with my professors or whether it's with other students. And we have to recognize that the law protects people of privacy, and I think for good reason. So when students are reporting, we're not going to know what happens to the teacher. We don't know. We're not going to learn the disciplinary action, right? We're not going to learn of that because they are protected under the law. So I think students need to know that because the justice that we seek is not always going to be 100% clear and transparent on what happens to those staff members. But what you can know is that your reports are taken seriously. Mm -hmm. One of the things that became clear to me is that um, as an institution, we need to do a better job of defining sexual harassment, um, what it is, what it isn't, what it forms it might take, right? and also more clear about what the process is for reporting something that makes you feel uncomfortable. Like, who do you talk to? Who is who's the person in charge of that sort of thing? What are the steps? What could you do if you don't want to report? What if you don't trust anybody at the, on the campus? What should you do? You know, those kinds of things. So one of the things that, um, that I'm working on is putting together some um, teachable materials uh, for for the fall um, around Title IX, which is federal law around sexual harassment, because if students are feeling uh, uncomfortable because of the way they're being treated with regard to their gender or their 
uh, stated gender or birth gender or anything like that, then it becomes, it can be really problematic. It's against the law. Um, and so there's, uh, I want to do some more teaching about what Title IX is, how sexual harassment is defined, what the process is for reporting it, uh, but also the, I, she used the word grooming, which raised all kinds of red flags uh, because that's definitely about um, creating, lowering a young person's sort of boundaries um, in order to take advantage of them sexually down the road. So grooming is sort of the long game, right? It's not the one thing that said that was horrible, but at least that was the, just the one thing that was said. Grooming is a deliberate act and it takes time. And the idea is to reduce the child or the young person's inhibitions and make the person who's uh, acting in that way to be the sole trusted adult so that they can then act in a predatory way sexually. So, um, so I, I feel like we need to teach what that is, right? What, what does it mean? What are some of the signs yeah. that a person might be looking for? Um, so that they would, you know, I don't want kids coming back to campus in when we ever, we ever get to come back, <laughs> coming back to campus and feeling tentative about being in our teachers' classrooms and feeling worried that they might be in danger in any way. And I think part of what we can do is to be just super blunt about educating both adults and young people about what we're talking about. And so that's part of what I'm planning, putting together materials for in the coming, probably to start so early in the early in the school year. Yeah. If, I, if I knew we were all gonna be back together, we were doing advisories, we, we might be doing it that way. Mm -hmm. It may be a webinar that, I, I mean, I don't know how I'm gonna do it yet because I don't know what the format yeah. is gonna look like. Mm -hmm. um, but there's, I put together a chart, for example, of acceptable behaviors and unacceptable <laughs> behaviors. Just as an example, um, like acceptable, as, and a school adult sends you a text or a message about a school assignment or an event. Fine, right? So saying they shouldn't text a kid, we've all been texting people in this remote learning world, right? So the texting itself is not the problem. The problem is, What's the content yeah. of the text? And is it pervasive? And what time of day or night you know, is it coming in? So it says, unacceptable. A teacher sends you a text asking you about your love life or making suggestive comments about your appearance or just thinking about you, right? So the, what I tried to do was set up some parallels. Like, you go on a field trip. It's perfectly acceptable and reasonable for the adult to go room to room and check to make sure everybody's where they're supposed to be. It would be unacceptable for the said adult to then invite a child or a, two children into his or her own hotel room, right? So just sort of laying out, it's not all inclusive, it's not everything mm -hmm. that might happen, but I think it starts to get, um, to get out um, what we're talking about, of things that would be, you know, that would be questionable enough that would make you as a, as a young person want to say to someone you did trust, is this weird? This feels weird. Like I wanna kinda of work on people's gut a little bit mm -hmm. so that if something is going on, it won't be months before someone speaks up. 
right? That they would be like, uh, no, weirdo. <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing that. And so that's part of what's in the, in the materials that I'm working on. And in some of these cases, I would say, yeah, these are classic cases of pervasive sexual harassment. And that especially happens if the school adult then uh, creates an environment among the other students where by the adult's behavior, some of the other students are, um, feel permission to be disrespectful as well. If I had known about that situation at the time, there are twofold things that I would that um, you can think about doing. Number one, um, some of the things on the part of the adult were pretty egregious that I could have dealt with in a very serious way. But I think there's also education that would have need to happen with the with the students in the mix. I mean, this is a different example, but a couple of years ago, there was a and it might have been last month. For all I know, my sense of time has gone completely sideways in this pandemic. But um, there was a whole bunch of really ugly stuff happening on a, a chat chat group with the band. Awful, awful stuff. And um, somebody came forward to report it. We investigated. We uncovered pages upon pages upon pages of really awful, racist, sexist, anti-Semitic stuff. And... Um, I ended up meeting with all of the parents, all of the the whole group together, small groups, like we definite like some kids that were most guilty of who were guilty of posting things got additional consequences, but I met with everybody. Like why didn't you say anything? You were on this same thing for months. You didn't say a word. Why not? You know, and that's talking about sort of trying to find that what's just teenagers being teenagers and what's completely inappropriate. So meeting, I think meeting with small groups of kids and having those conversations um, is how I would have approached that situation. A lot of educating, a lot of trying to make real um, the experience, the building the empathy, right? Like if the... Um, the how do you what's the perspective of others in this situation you think it's funny well, I don't think it's funny here's why I don't think it's funny you know and that that kind of thing um, we did something similar with um, a soccer team a few years ago where there was a, a an ongoing thread that was uh, very disrespectful to girls very disrespectful and um, a particular couple of girls in particular, and we had um, a meeting with the team. We had the um, domestic violence uh, prevention people having a meeting with the team and the coaches, and you know, so it became a way to educate minds and hearts. So you kind of want to work at it. So it's not just a consequence, right? You're not just doling out a, a punishment but rather there's some education and some possible restorative practices that go along with that. I'm not seeing a lot of the guys that graduated that were in the same clubs as me, that were in the same classrooms as me, as me sharing the things that I post. I talked to a classmate that I had who was also part of the organizations that I was participating in in high school, and I asked him why so many of the guys were not reposting or sharing about 
the predators and about the movement and everything that we're talking about here. And he told me honestly, this is what he said. Jasmine, we support everything that you've been posting, but we know that we were part of the sexist culture. And because you and other girls have called us out without saying our names, we felt kind of attacked and we didn't want to be placed in the same bubble as you. Because if we're reposting, then we're part of the controversy as well. And that makes us want to distance ourselves because we are talking about it in our group chats. We're talking about it in our circles. And then they start the whole argument about not all men, you know, the typical not all men. And after talking to this classmate that I had, I realized I can understand where they're coming from because it is difficult to admit your wrongs in the past. But I think we need to all understand that we're all learning here, right? I would applaud and respect these guys so much more if they admitted their wrongs in the past and started conversations. If they post what I'm posting and then say, yeah, I made these comments in the past, but now I know better. Feel free to talk to me. Let's start conversation about this. Let's discuss. We need to have open communication and open conversation and not shy away from our mistakes in the past. The thing that surprised me the most about these guys who are now in college is that none of them apologized to me or the other girls for their sexist behavior in high school. And they excused it by saying they were naive or they didn't know better. But the apology is still necessary. And if you believe that you are an ally, I think the first step you can do is recognize your mistakes, apologize, and then share that experience so that other guys can listen to you and learn from you. What we need to do is create welcoming spaces for guys to talk about this on a regular basis. This shouldn't be a once in a year thing where we talk about sexism and sexual harassment. This should be a normalized conversation that is ongoing and continuous, mm -hmm. right? This can't only be a guys club either. Like everyone has to be involved in these conversations. And I think teachers need to be trained in how to talk about these issues. That's the only way we can truly have a safer and more inclusive space. The fourth part of my plan is to create a near-perfect reporting system. The margin of error has to be so slim, so small, it has to be near zero. <laughs> we really cannot afford to make mistakes with this, and that starts from the ground up. This cannot be a Google form. This reporting system has to be a dynamic conversation between counselors and students where students feel supported talking about these issues. And this goes from the root of even, you know, a lot of reporting systems are just submission boxes. And that really is not enough, especially for 13, 14, 15 year olds who don't know the vocabulary words to use or don't know how to really process the experiences that they have. We need to hire full-time staff, people that are well-prepared and trained to talk to students through this reporting system. What I worry about is things happening to kids that they're either, they either aren't sure that it's problematic so they don't say anything, or they're afraid that no one will take them seriously so they don't say anything, or that they think they would give up too much so they don't say anything. So I think we have to have strategies in place to deal with all three of those.
those reasons why someone might not might not say anything, might not report. Yeah. And so that's what I'm working on, are those three categories. Okay. Like in this document that I'm working on, I'm not ready to sh I'm not ready to pass it out. But um, like, what can I do if I think I'm being sexually harassed? And it lists some some steps, right? Uh, what What can I do if I worry that I'm being groomed? And it lists some steps. Um, and so that's we're working on streamlining some of the reporting. The last part of this plan is increased transparency with the district. The district and administration should release how many reports they're receiving and how many investigations they're conducting. This doesn't have to include names, right? That's illegal. But I really believe that parents and students deserve to know how they're handling this situation. There's been various initiatives and projects started by our district that we never even heard about. There are projects that eat up our budget, but because they were failures or because they delayed a few years, the public is not notified about it. We're only told about the initiatives and mental health projects that they're working on when it makes them look good and when there are successful results. Thus, I propose that the district and administration sends an email or survey to every student and parent of our district to ask them, how do you feel about this situation? How do you feel sending your students on campus? How do you feel about predators on campus? All of these questions can really keep the district accountable and the district can, you know, release the survey results and be transparent with how parents and students are feeling. I had shared with her that these are all good ideas and that I would share them with my colleagues. And I also shared that some of these matters may not be best taught in a remote learning Zoom environment. Uh, I'd shared that, you know, these, uh, so we need to plan thoughtfully uh, because as, as you know, Sanat, having a school of, you know, even a, a grade level, 600 people on a certain Zoom uh, is not necessarily as effective as having a serious dialogue about serious issues. So um, I said it's not something that we can address. Some of these plans is going to take time where we have to wait until COVID-19 goes away. At the same time, we don't want to blow off the issue because frankly, one-on-one -on -one or, or student interactions online could also be concerning. So we're taking it very seriously. And some of the ideas she has, I think, are very thoughtful. And I've already shared them with uh, my associate superintendent colleague. Uh, and we're figuring out ways in which we can make sure that we um, do some of these educational moves going forward. If a student came to you mm -hmm. next year and said, hey, I think this is happening, but I'm not sure, then what would happen in that case? I would investigate. I would like, tell me more. What have you, what's happened? What have you seen? What, what have you noted? I would, I would start asking questions. Like we had a situation where I called in, oh, I don't know, I probably talked to 40 people uh, bef before I made a call on what was going on. Um, it just, it will just, so largely what happens, if, if I, if, based on what's being said to me, I believe that there has been a violation of the law, then I involve law enforcement right away. 
because that's not something like I'm not a, a law and order SVU <laughs> investigator, right? I'm a I'm an educator. So uh, if I feel if I it looks to me like a law might have been violated, then I'm going to involve law enforcement. If it looks like a teacher has violated the ethics of the profession, even if it is not having violated the law per se, then I'm going to involve the HR department, uh, human resources department at the district, so that it's not just Ms. Chamberlain trying to decide you know, what goes on. What I can say is that I spoke with an investigator last week that is hired by the district. She's hired by the district to create a fact report on all of the reports that I received and to look into specific cases of teachers that were extremely dangerous and concerning. So that is being done. I hope that people know that the district is putting on, putting on a serious investigation in addition to that, I am working with the principal on the reporting process. So Cami is sending reports to HR, sending reports to law enforcement. She is doing what she feels is best for each report. I think there is not an end-all, be-all solution for predators right because it has to be done case by case we can't just simply fire all the teachers that were predators because then we'd lose like so much of our staff and not only that for some of these teachers i think there is room to grow there is different levels you know and then there's just a range of things that can happen from someone being arrested to and charged to uh, being uh, asked to leave the school or being released to losing a teaching credential so that they can't be a part of another school anywhere, to being written up, to having um, being suspended without pay for a certain amount. Of, I mean, there's just a there's a range of things that could happen. Um, if the the teachers union and or the teachers have a, a contract, and so there's certain steps that do process that have to be followed, which we do. Uh, right, we've put people on leave while we investigate. So, like, if there's something happens that makes me think, uh-uh, I don't want that individual anywhere near my kids until I figure out what happened, then we've done that, where we've placed someone on on temporary leave while the investigation took place. We have hired outside investigators, so some people that are trained in asking the right questions and talking to. Um, talking to a variety of people and putting together uh, a story. Uh, we've done that in some cir circumstances. So it just depends on the situation, but something happens. I really believe that we as students, we as people on this earth, we as coworkers, we as human beings, we as friends need to do more than just listen to these rumors. If you're hearing these rumors, if you're hearing these comments, it's not enough to just listen to them and laugh or listen to them and just walk away. You need to make sure that you are standing up for other people. And that's what allyship really is. Being an ally is going out of your way, being uncomfortable to start conversations, to make safer spaces for others. Being an ally is using your privilege to talk to other people in the same privilege group as you to make sure that these conversations are being made and that change that changes are being made to everyone's behavior. So hopefully um, we can do a better job of educating both sides of this equation 
and uh, so that kids aren't fearful and they're not at any risk and teachers aren't putting themselves in a position to be at risk of being misunderstood and we don't have uh, predators um, walking the halls pretending to be positive force. We need to follow through with all five parts of this plan so we can be a model for other districts. This is the bare minimum that we have to do. I looked into policies of districts from all across the state and nation, and there wasn't a single school that was doing the bare minimum to prevent grooming behavior and prevent predator teachers from grooming their students. I really believe it's crucial that we take extra steps and become the model for other districts across the state and the nation. This is not something that happened in 2020 and you just put it in the back of your mind. In the future, now that I'm sharing this entire plan to the public through this podcast, if the administration and if our district still continues to do nothing, then there really is no excuse. Thank you for listening to the Prospector Podcast. Thank you to Jasmine Till, Cupertino High School Principal Kemi Tomberlane, and Associate Superintendent of the Fremont Union High School District, Tom Avakumovitz, for being willing to speak to us. This episode was edited by me, Sanat Singhal, interviews conducted by both Ashley Kang and me, and the graphic designed by Stella Gia. Until next time, stay home and stay tuned.